Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Those of you listening to the last episode will be glad to know that while I remain a hero, I did not die a martyr's death over the course of my holiday. And I'm here for you, even while I'm still on holiday, Michael. Even while on holiday. So, to start with, a little amuse-bouche. Those of you long-time listeners to the show will know that I'm very fond of a good amuse-bouche. However, this is a slightly more literal one than we usually go for. For those not in the know, amuse-bouche is a gift from the kitchen, so usually we use it to refer to small stories that are not worth talking about for a long period of time, although we will often do that anyway, but rather like little things to know. However, this time, I'm going to give you a, uh, a literal amuse-bouche that I picked up the recipe for on my recent holiday. It is a uh, roasted tomato and smoked bacon amuse-bouche. It's a soup. It's very easy to make. It is absolutely delicious. And I'm going to include the ingredients uh, in the show notes. So anyone who wants to try it. Now, the notes aren't detailed enough in relation to what type of smoked bacon you use or what type of balsamic vinegar you use. Because as we all know, Michael, particularly if you're shipping, you're shopping for balsamic from around the Moderna region, very different from what you might expect. Excellent, but different. Uh, well, and also you could usually tell by the price on the, the, the label how different it's going to be because it goes from possible to basically impossible for the ordinary person. However, I'm delighted that you're talking about this kind of a booze bush because I was talking to a fan uh, last week who said we should do stuff on food that people would be interested. So Ruth, there you are. Gary is doing something about food. I only use a Moderna balsamic. That's the only type of balsamic I'll use, Michael. Just for the sake of clarity to the uh, to the listeners there, Gary is, is, is getting slightly confused between his balsamic vinegars and his covid uh, vaccinations. Moderna being a vaccination, Modena being a city in Italy. How terribly embarrassing, Michael. <laughs> embarrassing, yeah. Gary, I'm sure you're capable of embarrassment in theory, but I have yet to see it happen in practice. The key is just to never never stop, never admit fault. <laughs> like a shark, just keep going forward. A shark made of lies. <laughs> so, we may as well start on the actual news. That is possibly not a great introduction for a news podcast. It's not brilliant, no. <laughs> well, no, I think we're driven on one heart by your obsessive desire to be accurate and my obsessive desire not to be sued for def- defamation. But it works together come, uh, to produce a reasonable degree of accuracy. You know, you can always just hope that if you do get sued for defamation, the senior counsel your opposition hires kills a man. Allegedly. He allegedly definitely killed a man. I know nothing about what you're speaking. You're speaking in a foreign language. I don't know. I disassociate myself from all these remarks. That's the that's the tone of discomfort I strive to get. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you're happier now. You can move on. Do you want to explain that? No, I, I don't. Not at all. So we may as well start. Actually, this is this this will work, will work nicely, Michael, because the first thing we have lined up to talk about is the CSO report on trust in the media. Well, trust trust in the media or lack of trust in the media. And la- you say lack of trust in lots of things, actually, Gary. It was quite interesting because the CSO put out a uh, the results of their uh, survey on trust came out there uh, during the week, a couple of days ago. So I I was as I do uh, reading the Limerick Leader and Carlo Live which put up exactly the same story, about how fewer than 40% of people in Ireland trust political parties, according to the CSO. And this story goes down and it lays out all of the different groups that people in Ireland have trust in. And there are some surprises there, like I didn't think the guards would be uh, as uh, high as it could be. It's on a 1 to 10 scale, and the guards, I think, got uh, 
at least a six. Six point seven. What I noticed, Michael, is that because I went and I read the CSO report, because of course you do when you see these sort of fascinating stories. I realized that there was one group that was missing from these stories. The CSO would also ask people how much they trust Irish media. Now this is a favorite topic of Irish media. There was the Reuters uh, survey last year that was widely covered in Ireland, uh, looking at trust in the media. But when you look at the CSO, Irish people don't really trust the media. In fact, the level of trust in the media is the second lowest that they report. Yes, just a smidge under the level of trust in the local authorities. The only group in Ireland that is less trusted than the media, this is the news media, is political parties. 54% of people say they don't trust political parties, which is a bit weird because only 34% of people say that they don't trust national government. And Michael, I'm not sure if you're aware of this. Government, Michael, is made up of politicians. And politicians are also the basic building block of political parties. I was mentioning to you earlier before we came on here that I am at the moment reading a book called Ruling the Void, which is actually all about the disengagement of political politicians from the party system and the death of the party. Uh, We'll be talking about this. We're hoping to get someone in to talk about it. So maybe this has something to do with that. But I don't think exactly a wholly wholly different thing. But listen, Gary, it's like those, you know, you, you constantly meet people who if you ask them, do you trust politicians? They say, oh, absolutely not. Do you think that the government is a competent uh, body capable of doing jobs on time within budget in, in an efficient matter? Oh, God, no. And this exactly the same people will then go on to their favourite project and demand that the government take over, and it could be whatever it is, X, Y, or Z, that the government should be, they should nationalise the banks, and the government should be nationalise all the building companies and build all the houses, and the government should take over the provision of food. And you think, but that's, it's exactly the same people will be building the houses and running the petrol stations and bringing in the food that are now building the children's hospital. You don't think that there's a, no, 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 no. Everybody deep in their heart has this notion that somewhere in Dublin there's a building of people of brilliance and competence that they just haven't got around to using yet. But if they get to their favourite project, that they're the people they will actually use. So people don't tend to make that, consciously make that distinction. Yes, they don't trust political parties. And yes, the government is composed of political parties. But somehow, in some strange and magical way, some alchemy occurs, and the government therefore becomes more trustworthy than the political parties. It's just one of those funny magical things that happens, Gary. You just have to accept. So, news media, incredibly untrusted. 37% of people just do not trust the media at all. 19% of people neutral on the media. 42% of people say they trust them. And, well, we have 2% who don't know. Now, I might offer a reason why those those figures could be so bad, Michael. Yeah. Let's take the Limerick leader and the um, the Carlo Live story. If you write an entire story about the different organizations and, and institutions that people trust and then don't include specifically the point on people not trusting media, people might suggest that you know, you're not an honest broker. You think that the act of leaving out the media from the list of things trusted or untrusted might lead people to have a lack of trust in you. I think people might ask, if you're not going to report negative stories about yourself, what else haven't you reported about yourself? I think that's fair. I am kind of surprised that we didn't see, or at least I couldn't find, an Irish Times or Irish Independent story on this. Maybe not yet. Well, the survey came out 24th, I think. It's the 27th now. Maybe something in the Saturday papers. The Times may cover it, actually, because the Times are published things that the others aren't interested in. Hmm. Whenever I'm researching anything, Michael, on a story I think is 
going to be interesting. The only paper I'm ever worried might actually beat me to it is the Times. The Irish Times? No, God, no, no, no. The Times.co.uk Irish edition. Okay, right. Foreign papers, Gary. I mean, I don't know if you could, I don't know how you could trust a foreign paper. Do you trust foreigners? Probably no less than I trust the average person. I just, I'm in my head, I'm now composing the headline that you will put along this podcast with me on the question, but can you trust foreigners? Well, we've already done, you can trust foreigners, and I'm still taking shit for that. You're taking, you're taking, no, Gary, no. You're not taking shit. I'm taking shit for that. As a child, the single most common common response I had to give to my family was, don't you know when I'm joking? Because they very, very often did not. And I have now reached the stage of my adulthood where I'm having to spend most of my time saying the same bloody thing again. To people who don't care. To people who don't care about whom I don't care also. It's just one of those things. Speaking about people who don't care about things, I wanted to talk about the Ivana Batchik interview, but someone didn't do their homework. Someone didn't. Someone was given the Ivana Batchik interest I- interview two minutes before we were going to go on air to record. Can you not listen to a 17-minute interview in two minutes? Strangely, no. Not since I became unwell. That sounds like a you problem rather than a me problem. <laughs> I knew a guy in college exactly like you. Didn't matter what you said. He would look at you and say, I'm sorry, that sounds very much like something you need to deal with, not me. So just I'll just run through it, because I'll put a link to it, because it's worth listening to. So Vanna Batrick gets named as the new leader of the Labour Party. That happens on the 24th, I think. I must just interject that Eilish O'Hannon made the comment that it was there were there were more rings to jump through on The Apprentice than it was to get to become leader of the Labour Party. And this seems to have been true. It was not, uh, it was not what you could call a difficult process. More like a coronation than an election. You say that as if you don't love a good coronation by adulation. You know, Gary, I'm picky about my queens, as you know. So she goes on to drive time. It's Ivana Bacic, it's Labour, it's RTE. This is going to be a particular kind of interview, obviously. Yeah, that would be the expectation. And then it turns out to not be that kind of interview. It turns out to actually be quite a pointed interview about exactly what led to Alan Kelly resigning and how exactly elected members of the Labour Party put pressure on Alan Kelly to resign. And was there some sort of a plot here? And certain people were in a particular house on a particular day. And would Ivana Bacic like to comment to say if she was in that house at that time? And it turned out Ivana Bacic had some real problems answering questions. Just, you know when you, someone gets asked a question, Michael, and they just start talking about how the great work that person has done. And you can nearly feel that whoever they're talking to is not going to drop the question. And the second they stop talking, the second there's a pause, there's just, yes, that's all very well. But what about this? Did we get to the bottom of why Alan Kelly had to go? Oh, no, no, no. No, we didn't, Michael. Because I think, you know, to the small number of people out there who are vaguely interested in that question, I don't know anybody that really seems to know the answer outside of a certain coterie at the top end of the Labour Parliamentary Party. Certain things have been said about, shall we say, the the particular feather that broke that camel's back, Michael. But we couldn't possibly comment. Patrick is not having a good time. They don't let her get, go on to policy immediately. They keep asking her about the Kelly thing. While Ivana Batrick starts saying that that is a lazy narrative and we have to move on from it. <laughs> no, that's that's not the question now. 
The real question is, and I think the interesting question is, this is not a ref, this is not a, a tactic that has ever really worked terribly well with politicians and media. But still, they keep it is it's a favourite one. They keep going back to it. It's it's just, and it was surprised me because Ivana Bacic is actually quite a competent media performer. If a journalist is putting you under pressure about something, probably not in your interest to say that they're taking a lazy line. The average response to that, you you might if they're you know junior, you might be able to shake them a bit, but if they're senior, now they're just angry at you. Yeah. It immediately then goes on, Michael, to labor calling for a summer budget, you know, to make sure that people have everything in place they need that these price increases don't just swamp them. Very important topic. Sinn Féin have been talking about it. A lot of play in it. Yes. Probably a good idea to suggest this. But you see, then they ask Savannah how much it will cost. Well, that's not, that's not play in the game. That's dirty cricket of ask, asking a person how much something's going to cost. And again, if you've done enough interviews, you can kind of tell from how, or even if you just listen to them, you can kind of tell from how someone immediately responds whether or not they're now just bullshitting you and they don't actually have a figure. And it becomes immediately apparent that Ivana Bacic, despite calling for this, doesn't actually know how much it will cost. But Michael, they don't let that go. They make her admit that she doesn't know the figure by just refusing to ask another question. Oh, God. And eventually she just has to say, well, I don't have it in front of me. And there's a little bit of a, a little bit of a telling off, nearly a, maybe you should have it in front of you, given that you're the leader of this party and it's been talked about for months. (laughs) I love the implication I don't have it in front of me, but I do have it at home on my desk. Well, in fact, at this stage, anybody listening, I imagine, is fairly well convinced that there is no number, there is no piece of paper, or even the back of an envelope where anybody's worked out how much this could possibly cost, because nobody has a bogey. And then the, the last question, Michael. Yeah? The question where you can really tell that they <laughs> this isn't going well is, basically, Alan Kelly got two years, and then he was driven off by the other Labour TDs. If in two years you haven't increased Labour's poll standings... Would you expect to have a posse of Labour TDs turn up telling you that you've got to go? Well, you know, Gary, I see the thing that would occur to the most people is that if Labour have a posse of TDs in two years' time, Ivana will be happy. I remember when um, they were debating whether or not it was Aidan O'Reardon or Kelly who should get the leadership. And I think my opinion then, I'm not sure if I was wrong or exactly how I would, uh, would take it now, but was that if anyone was going to get them up, it was going to be Kelly. And that a rear dawn is just, like, he's a damp towel of a man. He, he is, I mean, absolutely shameless, which gives him some points. He just, his incredible focus on housing, combined with his willingness to try and stop any housing being built in his own area, is... It's just fantastic. Well, it is the hallmark of modern man, Gary, is the capacity to live in cognitive dissonance. And it seems to me Adon has a, a heightened capacity to live in cognitive dissonance when it comes to housing. Housing everywhere, but not here. I have to say, my experience of Alan Kelly, and I think a certain amount of sympathy from being driven out in this fashion, and I think slightly, even though it's hard to admit it, slightly disappointed from the per, from the from the perspective of Irish political life. Several times driving around the car, turning on the radio and listening to somebody talking about something, hearing a voice and thinking to myself, that's very sensible. Or that's somebody who understands the question or that's somebody who really has got to the heart of something. And then would discover that it was Alan Kelly and have to go off and be annoyed myself. He was very good on criminal justice. He was very good on the guards. He was, he was, he had a, he was asking questions and bringing up that nobody else had touched or was seemed to be interested in in going after. He was very well prepared. 
We've said before, Gary, there are times when you had to think Alan has a mole in the department, slight departments, a deep, deep, deep there, but someone who has access to the top, top grade stuff because he was so well informed. I think that the doll will be poorer without him in that kind of role. I think he was faced with what may be just a long term inevitable problem regarding the role of the Labour Party in Irish politics. It's just they've they've been subsumed in 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 some ways by the left wing of Fine Gael, in some ways by the constitutional crusade that Garrett started has now basically finished. The Labour Party is increasingly detached from its working class core. The Social Democrats are there. The Greens are doing their thing. What What's it doing? What's it for? Interestingly enough, all of that came up in this interview as well. That uh, <laughs> uh, There were a couple of points made regarding Labour. But Drive Time also thought to bring up that uh, if Labour is trying to move on from its last time in government, Ivana was in the Shannon as deputy a leader. And she was pushing for these policies. So it's not really a case of Labour moving on. It's Ivana herself having to actually ask people to forgive her for her own actions. That's just nasty to remind people of that, Michael. It is, and let's face it, I mean, you're, you're a deputy leader, it's not like they've given you the nuclear codes. And then, of course, they they did the, the standard, beautifully done, though, where you read a text from a listener, but you only read one. <laughs> and it, it sounds as if you're only reading that one, perhaps, Michael, because these are points you would like to make, but um, would not be appropriate for you to make. As to Ivana Batrick's schooling, and where she lives, and her level of wealth. Uh-huh. Interestingly, aside and I'm not suggesting in any way that it happened here in any way but did you know Michael that a lot of those radio shows which have listeners text in routinely falsify texts no routinely in the same way that they you know they have people call in oftentimes they will have people friends of the show who will just do that in order to keep things moving and make sure the right questions are put forward in the right way and yeah the right stories Michael that that probably happens in England Gary of course and I wouldn't want to suggest in any way that would be done here no 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 but it's just something I, I, I don't think enough people know about Irish radio. That it doesn't happen on Irish radio. Apart from all the times it does. But not this time, which is the most important thing. Oh, I see. Okay. So we accept it happens in theory, Michael, but we're also very strong it didn't happen here. No, you accept it happens in theory. I'm very suspicious of the idea that it would happen here. I think it would happen in places place like England. But I can't see it happening here. Too much integrity. Too much ethics here, Gary. It was one of the worst political interviews I've heard. Now, I put that as general worst because there are certain interviews which have been special in how bad they were being. Um, the Terence Flanagan interview when Renew Alonso is probably the high bear. Oh, God. That's, I mean, and I say that as someone who thinks Terence is quite nice. Oh, he's a grand man. He is a genuinely nice. Oh, well, God, you've triggered me. That that I've got PTSD after. Oh, It was so bad. It was, I've never seen like a senior interviewer so clearly trying to help the person they're interviewing. And how, how did that end? Was it actually um, was it something like, maybe you should take some time and we'll pick this up again later? Oh, it was savage. Mostly because it was so clearly intended to be nice. Like they felt bad for him. I'll see if I can find a link to it on YouTube to put it up for those who aren't aware of it. But it was. There's a, there's a line from the thick of it where one of the, um, one of their MPs goes on, I think, Paxman, and it's reviewed <laughs> by the party's PR people yes. as being, what was it? This is like watching a bear rape a sheep. <laughs> yeah, it was the guy who had notions later on to, to the, oh, I still see that. 
he starts sweating. He starts blinking, this desperate blinking. That's, yeah, it was similar. It was similar. Although, to be honest, the Flanagan was worse. Oh, that was awful. And a nice guy, a nice man. And a, a more competent person than that interview gave people to understand, I would say. There was a video that someone did of him where um, they put that interview and it was over a, a, an image or a gif of Terence Flanagan's head photoshopped onto a turtle. Oh, that's not kind. It was not kind. It was not kind at all. But it was very funny. So moving from uh, political news and, you know, the heavy kind of news, Michael, that we normally do, although we have actually quite successfully managed to not mention the war that much. Whatever you do, don't mention the war. The war almost, not yet, then hopefully it won't be around long enough to get to that status. What, what I will tell you, Michael, actually on the subject of the war, I, I may have mentioned this on the show before, I, I, I honestly can't remember, and apologies if I have, is that, so I can see the gripped analytics on, on everything that's going out. Ukrainian stories, no one is reading them. I've talked to a couple of people I know in other publications. I talked to them previously. I've talked to actually a couple of guys I know in America now as well. And they all say broadly the same thing. The stories on Ukraine are not being read by a terribly large amount of people. People, newspapers are covering them because they feel they need to cover them. Because, you know, we're a newspaper and it is serious geopolitical news. Absolutely, yeah. The point I would make there is that nearly everything covering it has been at best meaningless and at worst actively misleading because most people have no idea what's happening on the ground. And that's nothing against them. It's just incredibly difficult to figure out what's going on because everyone is lying about it. Of course. So you've got a situation where people feel they need to cover something, so they're covering it heavily, but also don't really know what's happening. And it's actually quite interesting because you can see the difference in different national media. So American media, and let's say French media, very different approaches to this and very different understandings of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I picked the French because the French are really resilient to anything done in English because they're so angry about it. <laughs> and they put so much emphasis on French. So if you're ever concerned about the influence of American news and what it's having on other English-speaking countries, try the French news because they are so insular that they just don't pick it up most of the time. Mm. And it's, it is quite interesting and they have... But it's not being read. Like it's, there is an incredibly small amount of people who are actively interested in it. And that's going to be a problem for Ukraine if this thing drags on because they have been so successful in using social media and the media to get support for them, which I didn't, I honestly did not think they would be able to garner by hook or by crook. And they got it. Well, it, part of that, I suppose, was the fact that they had time to do it that we didn't expect, or a lot of people didn't expect they would have. The assumption was it would be like Georgia, it would be like the Crimea, whatever. They, they would, the thing would be over so quickly that there wouldn't be time to build up a head of steam uh, with public opinion in, uh, in Europe or in North America as it happened. They've had that time and they've been very good utilising it. And that's not to say that I don't think that actually, and we've discussed this before in private links, people say, oh, well, there's two sides to every story. I think that one of the reasons that perhaps people are not reading the stories is one, the individual stories themselves, people, some people may find personally just upsetting, but also because I think people have just made their mind up on the, sto the, the bigger story. They don't think there's much complication or nuance to it. It's not, they don't think there are two sides to it. It's, Big, ugly Russian bear decided to go south with its tanks, and it's bad. And Ukraine gets to be the Ukraine, and Russia should pretty well fuck off and go home. But after that, yeah, I think there's, there's maybe a disengagement. 
the details of it because there is a sense and if we, we I mean I think we can know some stuff within a certain shall we say a certain tolerance not a hundred percent accurate but we have we have a certain idea of who's if not who's winning certainly who's losing I think certain publications can and the thing about those publications is that they tend to be people who have their they tend to be publications who have people on the ground in various parts of the countries. Now that has its own host of difficulties depending on who controls the region those reporters are in. So most of them are going to be in the cities controlled by um, Ukraine. Yeah. And that'll create its own issues because you're going to see or not see certain things and you're going to be told or not told certain things. But most most publications don't have that. They may uh, purchase stories from groups like the AP who will have people on the ground. But the AP, depending on the story, shall we say, is not hesitant to slant things to itself. But at this stage, there are a lot of foreign groups in there. I mean, all the American group, all the American channels are in there. The, the France and the French coverage actually has been pretty good. It, I've been watching the French coverage as well. I'm watching some of the Spanish coverage with subtitles, and actually some of that. Again, it's always interesting because you get a slightly different slant, a slightly different perspective, different cultural tone. Uh, the English are in there, some of the Germans are there, you know. So, you, you, you yeah, you, you you try and sift it, but it is what, anyways, is what it is. But the Oscars are coming up, and I'm sure everyone is going to be watching the Oscars on Monday. You see, that's the funny thing, Gary. Once, you know, I was never one of those people that would sit up all night and have your Oscar party and people dress up and drink cocktails and care desperately about the whole thing. And this thing, oh God, I mean, the idea of watching those pre Oscar shows, people standing around on carpets, watch, who are you wearing? I mean, I really, I can imagine few things that are more boring or horrible, but some people get great joy out of that and good luck and God bless. However, the the numbers of people watching the Oscars and similar shows is in decline. And one of the perceptions is that, is that these shows have become increasingly concerned with issues outside of some kind of a simple competitive vote on what was the best film, who was the best actor, actress, who did the best cinematography, who had the best music, that other issues are becoming are in, are intruding into this and it's becoming less well pure is a very odd word to use about anything connected with the business of hollywood but use that and there is this thing which has has been announced aperture 25 which is about hollywood's attempt to become more equitable and diverse now if you're looking for a political population just about them it must be one of the most progressive liberal, left-leaning, culturally voting populations you're going to find on the face of the earth, Gary. And we've seen actors who are perhaps more on the right certainly seem to have their careers damaged from talking about it publicly, at least in relation to certain uh, issues. So, what's going to happen uh, from 2024, which is, uh, it seems to me, unlikely to get people back watching with great excitement, is producers, which are the people who are responsible for financing and getting films made, will be required to submit to the Academy a summation of the race, gender, sexual orientation, and disability status of members of the movie's cast and crew. If a particular movie does not have enough people of colour, disabled people or lesbians or gay men working on the set, and quote-unquote, what is enough will be determined by 
what uh, one this journalist describes as a naughty tangle of Byzantine formularies, then that movie will no longer be eligible for an Oscar. Which now I just see he says if the plan is being is not being universally applauded in Hollywood, the problem is I, it's a, if nothing else, Gary. And you might say, well, you know, if you're making a particular kind of story set in a particular time in a particular place, well, to do this is just going to be creatively, artistically impossible. It's going to exclude all sorts of stories or it's going to make them odd or weird. But creating this kind of superstructure of regulation and checking is going to be enormously off-putting, I would have thought, unless, again, you're one of these very big organisations where you where you can have a permanent staff whose job it is to deal with this kind of shit. This kind of thing, it reminds me of the kind of regulation about, let's say, employment regulation or health and safety stuff, which big multiples, whether restaurant chains or supermarkets, are very happy to deal with because it's the kind of thing that small guy can't afford to deal with. But what they exactly think they're going to achieve with this in some kind of grand way, I'm not sure. Did you not think this is this sounds like the kind of thing that the the, the cinema ticket buying public is going to listen and think, ah, oh, Jesus, yeah, that's really what we want when we're spending our nine ten our, our ten quid to go to to see something in a cinema and to turn off from the world for a while and just enjoy some kind of escapism or art, sure. But this is so intrusive, isn't it? It is, and it's it's part of a growing trend in this area. Amazon, for instance, Michael, Amazon Studio, they have a policy, um, an inclusion policy, and here's here's a line from it on what you need to do if you're um, if you are doing something that's produced by Amazon Studios. So you need to include one character from each of the following categories in speaking roles with minimum 50% of these to be women, LGBTQIA+, a person with a disability, three regionally unrepresented racial, ethnic, and cultural groups. If you're looking for bids on it, you have to... One, if, this is a weird one, actually. If you're getting three bids from vendors for your production, one has to be from a woman-owned business, one has to be from a minority-owned uh, business. The creative team for the show has to include a minimum of 30% women and 30% members of an unrepresented racial or ethnic group. And this aspirational goal will increase to 50% by 2024. Now, it seems to me if you're focusing on all of these things, you've got quite a lot of distractions from actually just doing your production. And the show that actually made me look into this is Amazon's new Wheel of Time series. I was a, quite a big fan of The Wheel of Time growing up. It was one of the first fantasy books I, I ever read. And it starts in this little village, Michael, which is out of the way, has been out of the way for hundreds of years, or an extended period of time. And I started watching the Amazon show, and that village is the most racially diverse place I have ever been. Like, it is more racially diverse than the parts of New York I have seen. And on one hand, <laughs> does that matter? But on the other it's the sort of thing you see and doesn't really make sense in a world-building uh, sort of perspective. Because if, if there are all these races living together for hundreds of years, everyone would have just, you know, you, you would have bred together and you wouldn't have a clear racial distinction between people. And then it makes you start thinking that this is a deliberate choice someone has made for a particular reason. 
And the general response when you notice things like this is that people tell you, well, it's not important and you should just ignore it. But if it's not important, why are they doing it? It's that odd, weird, it's a paradox, isn't it? On one hand, you're being told race is utterly unimportant, it's a social construct, we need to dissolve it. Blah, blah. And then at the same time, we're also pretending, well, by the way, race is the absolute central issue and question for today. And the notion of, of being colorblind is a ridiculous, uh, offensive idea that we have to divest ourselves of because we have to investigate and challenge our, our, our sense of our own personal privilege. And we have to do both of these things at the same time, which is challenging for the less gifted amongst of us. But yeah, it, 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 it's, a, it's a fundamentally, it's a, it's a dishonest rhetorical device, I suppose, because you know, they're selling a particular selling a particular line and they, just, they sell whichever line they think works best at any one particular time. But if you actually want to, you want to show higher levels of representation, what seems to be happening is like, oh, we'll take King Arthur and we'll make everyone black. As opposed to saying, well, if we want to show representation of other cultures, perhaps we should produce shows based on those cultures' stories. Because that might take work. But, and I'm not saying this as a sign of a snide joke, but that would be regarded as culturally inappropriate because it would be cultural appropriation. And the only people that would be really uh, acceptable to tell those stories are people from that culture. I actually, I, I, I take two sources of annoyance from this. One is that it annoys me because often it's done in a way that doesn't make sense. Just within the logic of the world, doesn't make sense. And it particularly with relation to historical productions, where now just a major figure in, let's say, uh, Norman history is black or Asian. It's a bit weird. But the actual thing that really annoys me about it is if you complain about it or you comment about it, there's a certain amount of people who just assume you're racist. Whereas... I think it's perfectly fine to look at a production of King Arthur and go, it is a bit odd that so many of these chaps are Asian. Like, it's just a bit weird. Just a bit. I mean, if we're watching The Battle of the Five Gorges or something, uh, set in the first dynasty, first, first dynasty of Imperial China, and you had you, you a bunch of Swedes and Norwegians hanging around, you would think, oh, that's odd. Why are there so many Norwegians here? No, you might, if you're me, you'd also think, I wonder, did that mean that there was actually a Norwegian community that had found itself in China at this time? See, that's that's the other thing, that there are cases you see throughout history where in a country that is predominantly of a particular religion or a particular caste or a particular race, someone who is not of that raises to, rises to quite a high level. And there's really interesting stories about that all over the world. I mean, you have Genghis Khan had Chinese advisors, for instance. Of course, yeah. And his, and his nephew, Kublai Khan, who became emperor of China, I don't know if he did, but I think he certainly, descendants of his, had European uh, Jesuit priests at, at a high level in court advising. Uh, you had, well, famously, biblically, the Hebrew Joseph ends up being... Uh, a very the high chamberlain and advisor to Pharaoh in Egypt. Those are interesting stories. Probably quite interesting because there's so much unusual about them. But it's the fact they're unusual that makes them interesting stories. The Vikings that end up in Constantinople, in Byzantium, and then end up, actually, we're talk- not talking about the war, end up being very important in Kiev and Rus and the establishment of the, 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 the state of Kiev and Rus and Ru- Ruthania. 
I, every time I, I notice it, as becoming increasingly something to notice, it just feels weird. Like, I can see why it's being done, but now I need to consider the political inclinations and views of Amazon Studios, which is not really something I want to give a shit about. Artistically, if you want to use an unnecessary word, the thing that slightly annoys me about it is if I'm watching a film, is that it takes me out of the moment. If I'm watching it and I'm thinking, oh, that's interesting, I wonder was it actually the case that a lady-in-waiting to Mary Queen of Scots was a person of colour or was from Africa or was from Asia? Or is that just a casting choice that they've made for this film because they've made the, the Queen Elizabeth's uh, emissary to, to, to the Scottish court is, is uh, a black actor? Actually, a very good black actor, one of my favourites. But you're so what are you thinking? No, I know he. That's not true because I know that I know the who he was. But I think maybe. But I'm now being taken out of the moment. I'm not in the film anymore. I'm not in the story. I'm thinking things which are not, which are either, which are not relevant at all to, to the narrative. I think why 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 does this make this a better film? by doing something which is going to take me out of it. In relation to fantasy works, I think you have a lot more scope to it. Historical works, though, particularly when it involves putting someone of a religion or race into a situation where, had that historically happened, it would have been a shit show. There would have been some interesting reactions from the people around them, and that just kind of gets papered over in a sort of, nah, it's only history. Like, Yeah, it's like, if it's Star Wars, right? And instead of Alec Guinness being Obi-Wan Kenobi, you have Morgan Freeman. That's cool, because there's no reason, he's, because it's not history, it's the future. I mean, the Dune book has uh, Jews in it, just randomly. Also, one of the central things in Dune, there's a thing, is it the Jihad? The Butlerian Jihad. The Butlerian Jihad, which is my favourite phrases of all time. And a book which I have not read, but I've come across this, The Butlerian Jihad. And I just think that's fantastic. I don't know why that gives me such pleasure, but it does. We would, that comes back, that goes back to the time of the Butlerian Jihad, which it has been explained to me, this is why you cannot have machines which can... Yeah, you can't have, AI, like, true AIs capable of thought. You cannot build them. So instead you have to have real people who are very good at doing sums in their head. Something which is not at all explained in the film. The film baffled me. <laughs> Gen absolutely baffled me. I survived around an hour into it. And the only thing I could say about it afterwards, trying to describe it to a friend, was that I didn't feel like I was actually watching a movie. It didn't feel to me like a film. I didn't have any sense of a narrative structure or a story or a direction. But rather, it was some like somebody had done... a. a a documentary without a soundtrack and was filming all the stuff that was going on behind the scenes of a movie set where people maybe were practicing their lines because not only do you have something, you have no explanation of what the fuck is going on. You have a soundtrack, Gary, which comes on loud when people are talking and in the background you've got machines going, you can't hear anybody, what anybody's saying. The sound mixing for Dune is one of the worst I've ever heard in a major motion picture. And the soundtrack is also deeply cliched. Like, there's a point where you, you see, you know, a character looking ahead and then beginning to turn to look over their shoulder, and you just know. You know the chanting is about to start. <laughs> also, I, like, I watched it, and I had, I've read the books. 
I think the the first few books are very good, and then they get very, very weird very, very quickly. But you know, some people like that. And I was watching it, and there's so much stuff in the movie that if you don't know what happens in the book, you would have no idea what was happening. I was seeing, I was watching it with somebody who knew the books very well, and he gave up because he said there was just so much stuff left out that it was impossible to understand anything. Luckily, I fell asleep around an hour into it. And because the soundtrack was so loud, no one could hear me snore in the cinema. The choices they made, actually, and there's no point going into it because we're not that kind of show, they made some very bizarre choices as to what to cut from the book that start making House Atreides look much better than they are in the book. Like, the book actually explains... Like, did you were you awake at the point they find an assassin in the walls? Uh, no. Okay, well, the, the book explains... That, that just happens. That's not the House Arconan going off the rails. That's just the expected behaviour. Yeah, because it was explained to me that it was acceptable to kill people within a certain context. Yeah, there's methods of assassination and ways of doing things that are considered part of basically a political game. Anyway, my, my point, to the extent that we have any point at all, is that in a movie like that, the racial characteristics or makeup of the cast is for open season. You could have everybody could be from North Africa or everybody could be from Southeast Asia or everybody could be from Canada. It wouldn't make any, it seems, as long as they were competent actors. And it wouldn't see, didn't seem to me that it would make any terrible great difference to to think. At least it wouldn't take you out of it. I think also, and, and this is something I've noticed, like there are certain works of art, whether they be books or films or things, that come from particular cultures, or even people from those cultures who've moved elsewhere. And they have a genuine affection or wish to portray those cultures or their people or, or whatever it may be in that medium. And the older I've gotten and the more of this sort of stuff I've seen, the easier I have found it to tell when something is being done organically and when something is being done because someone has a checklist of we must have these type of people and they must say these sorts of things and they can get into these sorts of situations. But it's not organic. It's not what the author wanted in the work. Yeah. It's what a bureaucrat told them they had to have in the work. And what I don't see, and I, I, I have had a, a bit of a look around, I don't see a list of except for, but in this situation we can do, you know. So it occurs to me, like, to take a simple example, the, the Field was quite a successful Irish movie, right? If you were going to make The Field today, and you're going to give obey the rules that would make it eligible for consideration for an Oscar. What would the field look like? I mean, I'm not saying... And I say that, I think, God, should I care? But it's untruthful, I suppose. You're you're, you're putting people in, and you're making... Which just was not what Kerry looked like in the 1940s. And does that matter? Well, if it doesn't matter, then why are we doing it? Anyway, Gary, this uh, it's unlikely that either of us are going to be involved in an Oscar-making, an Oscar-nominated uh, film in, in the near future. So. Well, not with that attitude. Not with that attitude. So maybe we should tie it up there. But get out there and enjoy the sunshine while it lasts because the snow is coming. And do make the uh, amuse-bouse in the uh, show notes. I, I think it would be too much for a full soup, so you're probably only going to want a half portion. And if it tastes terrible, well, you made a mistake somewhere in it. So don't come crying to me. Have a good week. 
All the best.